Well, we uh, continue on our journey this morning with Israel in the wilderness. Last week, we saw the miraculous deliverance of Israel through the sea as their backs were against the wall. And now the Lord has led them out into the wilderness on their journey towards Sinai, where He promised to bring them upon their deliverance. And without much further ado, we'll read this story together. But young worshipers, I want to ask you to, uh, to use your imaginations here to get a little excited about the miracles that are taking place in this passage. And I want to ask you to write down in your work for young worshipers, what's the most awesome miracle in this story? What's the most awesome miracle to you as we read this? So would you stand for the reading of God's Word, beginning on page 6 of your bulletin from Exodus chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. The people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them had gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. 
Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over laid aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none." On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place, and let no one go out of his place on the seventh. So the people rested on the seventh day. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And as we're sorely hindered by our sins from running the race that is set before us, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. And would you be seated? Okay, so here's a little peek behind the curtain. In the course of a week when a pastor is preparing a sermon, there's a million other things going on. There's staff meetings, there's shepherding, there's deadlines, and bearing people's burdens, and your family is also in the mix, right? You may be studying a passage deeply, you're mining the linguistic and historical points for hours upon end and contemplating how to preach it to these people, and then you go home and your kids are playing dress-up and they want to paint your nails, right? We've all been there. But throughout the week as you're studying, you're thinking about the passage, you're thinking all along, how does this passage interact with me? Like, what am I supposed to learn here? And then what does the Lord want our congregation to learn? And sometimes that's hard. You're having a heavy week and you're exhausted. You just can't seem to get a grasp on how this passage affects your life. Other times, it hits you over the head. And friends, this was one of those weeks For me. And so today, just like every Sunday, I need this sermon just as much and maybe more than any of you. And here's why. I'll be honest, I've had this passage circled for a while. You know, I'm like, great, I get to preach on grumbling. Not that any of you need to hear that, but sometimes God's people can grumble. And so I've had it circled for a number of weeks. And And then I had a couple of hard meetings, a couple of personal things go wrong, and I began to do what I always do. What we all always do when these these things tend to happen and we become frustrated with the Lord's providence. 
I began to grumble. And even as I was grumbling, I'm struggling with this story. Like, I couldn't figure out why did the Lord not just smite these grumblers? Why did he even dignify their request with a response? And then it hit me. (laughs) Because God is not a grumbler like me. And his heart is not prone to scoffing and vengeance like mine. And he does not dispense of his grace based on human economies of merit or what have you done for me lately. No, instead, the Lord gives grace freely to all he wills. It's not based on our grumbling. It's not based on our labors. That's why I was having such a hard time with the passage. Because the Lord is not like me. He's gracious and wise, and he knows how and when to give good gifts to his grumbling children. But it is important to diagnose this grumbling, isn't it? Most of the time, we don't even know that we're doing it. One commentator on this story says that whining was Israel's besetting sin. Now, I'm not sure that's right. I think it might have instead been the symptom of their besetting sin. So what was at the root of their grumbling I think it was entitlement. Just before this episode, the Lord has led the people to an oasis in the wilderness called Elam, and and there he richly provided for them. We're told just before this chapter that at Elam there there were 12 springs of water, plenty for each tribe of Israel, right? And there were 70 palm trees there. Now these numbers are symbolic, They're meant to communicate complete and total provision and abundance. Their stop at Elam after the Red Sea crossing was a foretaste of the promised land. It was a a rest stop on the journey. But then they set out from Elam following the Lord's instruction because, remember, they have a destination. The Lord promised Moses he would bring the people to his mountain into his presence after he delivered them from Egypt. So they set out and they start to get hungry. Now, the way the narrative is presented to us, the Israelites are griping about, like, we're starving to death. But is that reality? I don't think so. Because later we're told they still have their livestock with them. Look, if I'm starving to death and I'm looking at that cow over there, I'm thinking he looks like a pretty tasty burger, right? What's happening here is that, and we learn this even more clearly later in Scripture, is that the Israelites are just grumbling for what they crave. They want the meat pots in Egypt, the barbecue grills, where they had all the comforts and at least have a a full belly, a place to call their own. Or they wanted plenty of what was given to them at Elam, their rest stop after the sea. They They didn't want to live like sojourners, even though their Lord had just freed them from their bondage after they themselves cried out for help. So the people grumble here, and they bring their gripe to Moses, which usually is what happens, by the way. The people bring their gripe to the pastor before they understand they're really just mad at God. (laughs) And it's really important here to understand the difference between this grumbling And the groaning that we talked about all the way back in Exodus chapter 2. Remember, God heard the cry of his people in Exodus 2. They groaned. 
They cried out for help, and he inclined his face toward them in Egypt. But you see, this word here for grumbling means a complaint against someone. Groaning is a crying out for help and desperation. Grumbling is a complaint against someone. So now they are lodging their complaint against their deliverer and ultimately against the God he answered to. And Moses, later, he makes this clear to them. But I think the people are grumbling here because of their sense of entitlement. They wanted deliverance, to be sure, but they wanted it their way. They didn't just want breakfast. They wanted second breakfast, right? How about elevensies for all you hobbit lovers out there? I can't imagine I'm the only one that feels like this. Like when you pray for something and God has to, like he has to intervene miraculously in some situation that you know you can't do without him, but then he does it in a way that offends your sense of how things ought to go. We grumble. See, but here's the problem with that theologically. We confess to serve an omniscient, omnipotent, loving, and faithful God who has shown himself strong on our behalf time and again, even when we didn't know how he would provide. Even when our backs are against the wall, our backs to the sea, and our faces staring down 600 of Israel's choice chariots and more, he has delivered us. Really, in a more dramatic and miraculous fashion than we could ever imagine. And once he has done that, our fleshly response is to grumble about how this all-knowing, all-powerful warrior God will provide for us in the wilderness. Friends, if we're going to embrace this theme of following Jesus on the road of discipleship, we must learn to trust him as our captain. And look, I get that I have a leadership role here, but I make a terrible captain. I just confess to you, I'm a fellow grumbler, right? Guess what? You just elected three more grumblers to help lead you in this church, overwhelmingly. But Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He never grumbled against us. And if we are asking you to follow us, it's only because we're trying to follow him. So the people grumble, and amazingly the Lord responds. What a gift. By the way, Brittany told me um, just a a little bit ago (laughs) that last night she had a dream about the tacos that there were no tacos, and that everyone was lined up grumbling about that. And so uh, I told her, it's providential that we're talking about that today. But the people grumbled. Now, now the Lord gives his gift to the people. But to be clear, the gift is given on the Lord's terms, not man's. He tells Moses, I'm going to rain down manna and quail, but I'm going to test the people to see if they'll walk in my law or not. Now, next week, we're going to see that Israel puts God to the test, but here he's testing them. He's going to give them very specific instructions with regard to the collection of the gift. You know, only gather what you need for the day, except on the sixth day, then gather what you need for the Sabbath also. In other words, gather in such a way that demonstrates your trust in me to provide. And what's the purpose of this test? What's being taught in this trial? Well, look back at verse 6. Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. So this is Moses' disputation against the grumbling of the people. And he answers all their complaints systematically. Remember the people grumbled, hey Moses, why'd you bring us out here? Moses said, no, 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 no. When you see the quail in the evening, you'll know it was the Lord who brought you out here. And they grumbled, hey, Moses, you brought us out here for nothing. We're going to die. And he says, no, no, no. The Lord brought you out here so that you could see his glory. And when you eat the bread of angels in the morning, you're going to see it. So then what happens? Well, Aaron says that, the, the, he says to the congregation, draw near before the Lord. Literally come into his presence He has heard your grumbling, and here's his answer. And then the Lord himself appears in a cloud of glory. Do you know what's just happened? It's not as if the Lord has just filled the bellies of the people. He hasn't just provided the manna and quail. He himself has shown up. He's given them himself. Do you know what the best gift is that a good father can give to his children? It's not a huge Christmas present. It's not a 529 plan or a giant inheritance. It's himself. In Wendell Berry's novel, The Memory of Old Jack, an an old man, Jack Beecham, looks back on his childhood relationship with his father. And Jack's two older brothers had died fighting in in a war, and his mother died shortly after that. So Jack And his sister, Nancy, were left alone with their father. And their father was never able to process the grief that he had over the loss of his older sons. And Barry describes it this way. He says, Jack's father had suffered too much from his experience. He felt too great a futility in it to be able to offer it to the boy. So instead, he kept him around like a pet barely talking to him, but using him for voiceless comfort. You know, pets know when we're grieving, right? They can sense that, and they do provide us comfort. But we don't have to explain our grief to our pets, do we? We don't have to give ourselves away for them. Well, Jack's father treated him like a pet in this way. Later in his life, after Jack's own daughter had rejected him, he befriends a younger man whose father had just died, a younger man named Matt. And listen to how Barry describes their relationship. He says, When Jack could spare a half day or a day, he would go on his horse and take a team and go to Matt's and just step into whatever work was going on. He gave Matt his help. More important, he gave him his presence. You see, Jack had learned from experience that the best gift a good father can give to his children is himself. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing here. In fact, he miraculously works in the camp just to to prove the point that it's really not about the manna and quail at all. Moses tells the people, just gather an omer of manna for each person a day, really about two quarts. That's enough to get you through the day, your daily bread, as it were. And what happened was that if you gathered a little more than that, it measured out to just an omer. If you gathered a little less than that, it measured out to just an omer. Or if you gathered way too much, it would immediately rot overnight. 
This is the Lord teaching his people that he is their provision. He is their daily bread. So that each day as they gathered, they would remember it's the Lord who gives. It's the Lord who provides. It's the Lord who protects in the wilderness. He gives grace freely to his children. And this grace also means that he is wholly unmoved by their labors, by our labors to provide for themselves what only he can give. This is the point of the gathering for the Sabbath. Why is it that too much bread gathered on any other day would rot overnight except for the bread gathered on the sa- to prepare for the Sabbath? It's because the Sabbath day, above all days, is a day when we are gathered in to be filled up on something only God can offer. And not by all the things that we try to gather for ourselves. The Sabbath is or should be a day when we remember that there is no amount of cleaning ourselves up, no amount of penance, no amount of work we can do to merit the gifts of grace God offers here through his word and at his table. We talked about this when we talked about the Lord's Supper recently, that the point of the table is not that we work to attain the grace given here by some introspective or legalistic penance, but rather it's freely given and that it fills us up in a way that we could never fill ourselves. Look, one of the, one of the most crucial truths to grasp in the faith, and maybe one of, the most, one of the most difficult for us to remember, is that God is totally unmoved by your so-called good works when it comes to dispensing out his gifts of grace. Totally unmoved. You cannot do enough to gather for yourself the kind of grace on offer at his table. You cannot feel enough self-pity to give the kind of relief from the burden of sin he offers. You cannot pray away your guilt or cover it with works of kindness or forget about it by hiding it in the depths of your heart and never dealing with it. There is one way to be free of guilt from self-pity, from that crushing weight of shame that says, I will never be enough. And that is to rest in the grace of Jesus Christ, freely given by the Father because of his sacrifice on the cross. I mean, that's, that's as hard a pill to swallow for some of us today as it was for the Israelites who still went out on the Sabbath. As it was for the people who followed Jesus after he fed the 5,000 Like, they could tell he had something, right? They saw the miracle that Jesus did, and they tracked him down. And what do they ask him? Well, this is a a brilliant work of God. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What did Jesus say? This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. The bread come down from heaven. And guess what? That's not all Jesus said. He said, this bread and even the faith to feed upon it is freely given of God's grace as he wills. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you know what that means for the children of the living God? It means there is nothing that you are doing now. There is nothing that you have ever done that can earn the favor of the living God. And there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's all grace. 
You know, I think these truths, the doctrines of grace, we sometimes call them, I think they either radically infuriate you or they give you radical comfort. I'm not sure there's much in between. Like, so you're telling me there's a God in heaven who freely forgives my sin, not because he foresaw some great works in me, but because of his free good pleasure, and that when the time came for me to know him, he himself gave me the gift of faith and drew me to himself, and that no matter what happens next, he will not send me away? Ah, no big deal. No, that's not the response. No, you either vehemently reject that kind of free grace because it offends your sense of self-justification or you bask in the beauty of it because you've seen the depths of your own depravity, the dark impulses of your grumbling and your entitlement, your efforts to self-justify or to bury your guilt and shame. You've seen how utterly futile they have been and so you rejoice in the marvelous gift of grace that God has given in the person of Jesus, the bread of life. But look, if, if you're here this morning and maybe there's some doubt, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're a bit skeptical, maybe you're here with friends and family, one thing for you is certain. You have to reckon with this offer, one way or another. This radical offer of grace from a God that is wholly unmoved in His giving by your efforts or your grumbling and in whose family there is no meritocracy, and who offers not just the fringe benefits of his grace, but offers himself to you. Good Father, protector, provider, Lord, Savior and friend to grumbling children like you and me through faith in his name. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Oh, good Father, you have provided for us the very bread of life come down from heaven. And so we give you thanks and praise for sending Jesus Christ to live a perfect life in obedience to your law, to die in our place, accepting the punishment for human sin, to be buried, submitting himself to the grave and death for a time, and to rise again, risen in glory, ascended, seated at your right hand, promising to come back. And even now, even now, feeding us with his presence at your table. So feed us, Lord. We're hungry for you in Jesus' name. Amen.